Amen. You may be seated. So as I said at the start of the service, we are in the middle of this series that we're calling Getting to Know God, in which we're looking at this very interesting claim that Christians make, that our God is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so we're really examining that over the, uh, over the course of these weeks to try and understand what does that even mean, and why does that matter uh, to us? Why does it matter for our world? And so as we take a closer look at now the second person of the Trinity, uh, Jesus, uh, we want to make sure that our hearts and our minds are indeed prepared to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please join me as we bow our heads and pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed brought us to this time and this place that we might come to know you, that we might learn to trust you and then follow faithfully where you lead us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us this morning. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would indeed be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, growing up, we didn't go to church. Um, in fact, uh, we didn't actually start going to church until I was a freshman in high school. And uh, as a result, sometimes around the lunch table, I would get really interesting questions from some of my friends who were Christians. They would ask me questions like this one. Do you trust Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And I'll be honest, that one always baffled me. Because uh, number one, I don't know how you trust someone you don't know. And number two, I don't know how you give your allegiance to a Lord you don't believe in. And so whenever they would ask me that question, I'd be like, what does that even mean? Because honestly, I, I don't believe in God. And, and so how could I possibly know who he is or trust him or give him my allegiance or any of that kind of stuff? And, and really, it boiled down to the fact that I, I had a serious problem with these two words, trust and Lord. And so as we kind of come into this kind of second piece of our series, we're looking at the person of Jesus. And one of the things that we say in the Apostles' Creed when we get together in worship is we say that, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Well, how can we say that? What does that even mean? Why does it matter? Especially because of the fact that we live in a society that struggles with trust. I mean, let's just take a look at the definition of trust for a moment. If you were to type the word trust into any online dictionary, these are probably the first two definitions you're going to get. The trust is assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. It is one in which confidence is placed. And so therefore, to trust in someone is to believe that that person is reliable, that they're trustworthy, that they have a character that's shown their integrity, and, and so on and so forth. Likewise, to trust in an institution means that you trust in the strength and the, and the uh, character and the integrity of that institution. And yet we as a society, we do not trust very easily. And I would argue that actually as the years have gone on, our trust as a culture overall has been eroding year after year. And you don't just have to take my word for it. You can look at any data from some of our, our largest uh, statistics agencies. For example, uh, I, I was looking at Gallup for a second and kind of asking them, how are we doing as a society when it comes to trust? And I actually found a longitudinal study that Gallup had done looking at Americans' trust in common institutions. 
and here's what they found. This is what they posted uh, in that study. They were comparing from 1975 to now. And they took some of our biggest institutions. I actually don't have time to, uh, uh, a slide big enough to get all these, so I just took uh, four. Uh, first, they took the presidency. In 1975, 52% of Americans trusted in the president as their leader. They said, yeah, on the whole, the president and the presidency in general, the executive branch, is trustworthy and has our best interests as a nation at heart. Now in 2020, that's gone down to 39%. Likewise, when it came to the legislative branch, Congress, in 1975, 42% of Americans said, yeah, Congress on the whole has our best interests at heart. They're trying to pass legislation that benefits us as an entire society. But now in 2020, that's at 13%. Now, I know some of you are probably sitting there and being like, well, those are the numbers for the current institution, but the previous one. Well, let me tell you something. I looked at the data for the previous administration as well, and honestly, it was only one percentage point different. Okay? Now, I'm not going to tell you if it was one percentage point more or less, because depending on where you fall in the political spectrum, I don't want to cause you to become prideful, because that would be stumbling. So we're not going to do that. Okay? Just know it's bad. Okay? It doesn't matter what party's in charge. It's not good. But here's the one that I found really fascinating. The medical system. 1975, most Americans said, I trust our medical system. I trust our doctors and our health professionals. I think that they, they are using their, their wisdom and their talents and their gifts and their scientific data and research for our good, for our health, for our benefit. That is down to 51% of Americans in 2020 don't trust their doctors. And yet we still take our prescription meds. That's crazy. I don't know, if a guy I didn't trust was telling me to take this every day, I'd start to wonder. But that's how, that's how bad it's gotten. And then here's one that I think should be sobering for us as Christians. In 1975, 65% of Americans of all backgrounds said that they trusted the church and organized religion. That is down to 45% today, 20 percentage points. You see, we live in a society of broken trust. Broken trust in our leaders, broken trust in our institutions, actually broken trust when it comes to one another. And in fact, if you ask researchers what is it that leads to broken trust, what they will tell you is that the number one factor that leads to broken trust is broken relationships. It's when you either don't know someone, or you thought you knew someone and they let you down, or you knew someone really, really well and they betrayed you. That is what leads to broken trust. And yet here come Christians saying crazy things like, I believe, I I trust in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Saying that we believe in, we trust in Jesus as the authority, the ultimate authority, our Lord. And no wonder that seems strange to our society because our society values freedom. And we constantly say, you know, we don't want to give our allegiance to anybody. It's all about you doing you, me doing me. We're just going to do what what we want to do. We have freedom. We choose our leaders, right? We just have all these choices and stuff like that. And no one should ever hinder our freedoms. We live under the belief that to call anyone Lord or to submit to any institution is an infringement upon our freedoms. And yet, what I would argue is that Bob Dylan was on to something. Here's what I mean. I don't know if any of you have listened to the song by Bob Dylan, You, uh, you Gotta Serve Somebody. 
But here's the song by Bob Dylan. He's talking about American society for a second. He says this in his beautiful drawl. He says, you may be ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan, everybody, right? Yeah. Bob Dylan was on to something because what he understood, great theologian that apparently Bob Dylan is, he understood that no matter what you give your heart to, it will ultimately enslave you. You could be in politics, ambassador to England or France, you're still going to serve somebody. You could be somebody who's just looking for a good time to have freedom and fun, but at the end of the day, you're still going to serve somebody. You could have all the wealth, all the prestige, all the respect in the world, but if you continue to think that that is where you tap your ultimate meaning, all you are doing is forging another link in your chain because you are going to have to serve somebody. If it's your career and success, Careers and jobs aren't bad things, but if it becomes your ultimate thing, well, then we spend longer and longer hours at the office working harder and harder and neglecting the other important relationships in our lives. We start competing not just against our competitors, but against our coworkers in order to get that next promotion. If what we're looking for is respect, respect something that we actually do owe to other human beings, but if that's where we tap our ultimate meaning, then woe betide anyone who doesn't give us the respect that we think that we deserve. I could go on and on. Kids, marriages, relationships, prestige, how many clicks you get on your social media page, doesn't matter. What they all ultimately do, if we're looking to them for our ultimate meaning, is they all ultimately enslave us. Because we will demand more and more and more from those things in order to feel like we are somebody. You see, what our society tells us is that we're free. But what Bob Dylan understood and what, quite honestly, Scripture will constantly tell us is that if you serve anyone other than the God for whom you are made, you are just forging another link in your chain. Honestly, as I was thinking about this, this isn't a new idea. Many of you are familiar with the uh, classic story, A Christmas Carol, right, by Charles Dickens, in which we encounter the miser Scrooge. Now, Scrooge had it all, at least professionally. He's a guy who had a very successful business. He had mounds and mounds of money. His competitors in business were terrified to go toe-to-toe with Scrooge because they knew how good a businessman he was. And yet what we realize is that Scrooge was forging his own chain. In fact, his former business partner who had passed away ahead of him suddenly on Christmas Eve shows up. His ghost appears in Scrooge's bedroom and he's bound in chains and and Scrooge wants to know, Bob, Marley, what, what happened to you? How is it that you are in so much torment? And he says, these are the chains that I forged in life, Scrooge. Every self-centered decision 
Every business deal that I made at the expense of another human being was another link in the chain, and the chain is longer on you. And Scrooge has to go through a journey of starting to finally reckon with the fact that he's been looking for all of life's meaning and purpose in his money, in his wealth and business, and it's only been links in his chain, right? Until finally he wakes up on Christmas Day and he realizes he still has a chance. And he suddenly starts becoming even more generous and, and he starts blessing the people around him. He actually goes to his uh, overworked and underpaid uh, assistant, uh, Bob Cratchit, and he brings the, 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 their Christmas Day dinner and, and he gives Bob a raise and, and he promises to take care of Bob's family. And they're all excited because it's Bob and Scrooge and the Muppets. And it's awesome. Come on, Muppets Christmas Carol is the best version. I'm sorry. It just is. They're all excited, Right? But here's the question that, that I think we have to wrestle with just a little bit. How does Scrooge know that he's not just forging another chain? Did you ever stop and think about that? Like what if now in his attempts and effort to clean up his life and to work off his chains, he becomes somebody who's so addicted to his goodness and his generosity and his uprightness? What if that becomes where he ultimately taps his meaning? Well, now he's not good and generous for others. He's still good and generous for himself. Furthermore, what happens when he uh, meets other people who don't quite meet his now very exacting standards for what it means to be a good person? Well, now they're just they're sinners. We shouldn't have anything to do with them, right? It's just another chain. You see, although Scrooge kind of had some kind of awakening on Christmas, I wish that what the awakening that he had 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 been his awakening to Jesus. Because what we see in Jesus is indeed a Lord who is worthy of our trust. Because one of the beautiful things that we learn is that just as trust can be broken by a bad relationship, trust can be rebuilt through a good one. That people who don't trust the medical industry suddenly start to trust it a lot more when they actually know doctors and nurses, personally as friends. That suddenly people who don't trust government and, and our government as an institution suddenly start to trust it a little bit more when they know somebody closely who just ran for office. That people who don't trust public schools suddenly become a lot more compassionate when they personally know a teacher. And by the way, people who don't trust the church suddenly start to walk through its doors because of the love of a Christian in their life. Relationships can rebuild trust, and in Jesus... We encounter the ultimate trust-building relationship because in him we see just what kind of a Lord we worship. Listen to these words that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. He tells them, I want you in your relationships with one another to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at, the knee of, uh, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
You see, in this passage, Paul shows us just what kind of a Lord we have. He is not a Lord who lords it over us. Rather, he is a Lord who humbles himself to serve us. And I will be honest, as a young man, when someone finally sat me down and explained that to me, it totally blew my mind. Because as I looked at every other world religion, every other philosophy, yes, they have gods who are all-powerful and almighty. Yes, they have moral codes that we should follow. Yes, they call us to serve our neighbors, but not, not one of them, not a single one other than Christianity would dare to claim that the holy and perfect God would willingly lay down his crown and leave his throne and enter into our world to love, serve, and sacrifice for people who don't even care who he is. And yet that's exactly what we proclaim. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. He says our God left his home in heaven to run after us, to pursue us. To give recovery of sight to the blind, to help the lame walk, to set the captives free. He is the kind of God who is willing to go and love people who didn't love him back and who from a cross was willing to look down and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the kind of love that he has for us. And when we understand that love, it changes absolutely everything because what we see is that he is a Lord who comes not to bind us up in chains, but to break chains and to set us free. And he did so at incredible cost to himself. I love how Martin Luther puts it in his small catechism talking about who Jesus is. He says, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father in eternity, is also a true man, uh, a true human being, born of the Virgin Mary, and that he is my Lord. He has redeemed me, a lost and condemned human being. He has purchased and freed me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. And Why does he do it? Well, he has done all this in order that I may belong to him and live under him in his kingdom. And serve him in eternal righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Just as he has risen from the dead and lives and rules eternally, this is most certainly true. He says God did this so that we could belong to him. So that we would know that we are loved by him. And that we are precious in his sight. And when you see the kind of love that God has for us in Jesus... That's what gives birth to trust. That's how he becomes our Lord, is by rescuing us, by dying for us, by rising again so that we might have the hope of eternal life and know that, in, that we have a place in his kingdom, that there is room for us at his table. Which means that, that whenever God calls us to do something, he does so not with fear and threats the way so many of our worldly leaders do. He does so out of love and gentleness and a desire for our good. 
That whenever he calls us to do the difficult thing, the hard thing, he does so because it not only is a blessing to us, but it's a blessing to everyone. And this is important for us to understand. Because not only does this help us to know that, yes, we can trust Jesus, yes, we can follow him, but it then teaches us how we are meant to interact with each other. See, what's so beautiful about that passage from Philippians 2 is that it's grounded in Paul's instructions to the church. Did you notice that? I mean, before he ever gets to talking about Jesus, what does he say? He said, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by what? Being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. Right? He says, if our Lord is willing to humble himself, to surrender his rights and his privileges, to give up his interests for the sake of loving, serving, and laying down his life for others, how could we do anything else? That's our calling as the church. And this is vitally important for us when we consider our relationships, especially in a year when our trust as a society has been so broken. Because it's a reminder of us of what our posture should be to rebuild it again. Now, I want to get incredibly practical on this this weekend, and it's going to mean that I have to get up in our business just a bit. But I think it's important. This has been a hard year to be a pastor. Probably not for the reasons that you think. It's been a hard year to be a pastor because what we, not just me, but all of us on pastoral staff, hear week in and week out is we hear two sides yelling not at each other but at us so that we'll yell at the other side. Just to let you know. I get emails from a lot of people, why aren't we yelling about this political issue? Why aren't we yelling about that political issue? Why aren't we yelling about vaccines? Why aren't we yelling telling people to get vaccines? Why aren't we yelling about masks? Why aren't we yelling about taking off masks? We get it all the time, over and over and over again. This is the stuff I get in my, in my inbox. And one of the things that I've heard most recently is really two things. As we come out of the pandemic... I've heard some people say, you know, I'm immunocompromised. I've taken the vaccine, but I've been told that I'm still a health risk. And whenever we take off our, church, our masks as a church, I'm going to worship back online because I don't trust my fellow Christians that they will only take it off if they're fully vaccinated. I don't trust them. So whenever you guys make that step, I'm, I'm going back to being online until the pandemic's over. Likewise, I've heard some of my fellow Christians being like, when are we taking those masks off? The CD says, says that we can. I've been fully vaccinated, and I want to get back to worshiping the way I used to worship. I hear you. I hate wearing this thing on my face, especially when we sing. It fogs up my glasses. Seriously, I, I, I share that, but here's what I didn't hear in that statement. I didn't hear anything about what message would that send to my fellow church members who have a legitimate health concern. What does that send to their kids who can't get the vaccine and still need to wear masks? What does that do? 
See, in both, what they're telling me is that there's broken trust within the church. And whenever we take that step as a congregation, the first question every single one of us has to ask, because I can't ask it for you, I don't know what's in your head and your heart, is you have to ask the question, what is good for my neighbor? And if that means I'm going to get the vaccine so that I can safely take off my mask because the risk of me passing it on to my neighbor is lower that way, then I get the vaccine. That's the reason I did it, honestly, guys. But if you're sitting there saying, I can't take the vaccine, I don't want to take the vaccine, then take the responsibility of continuing to wear your mask until the pandemic is over. For the sake of your neighbor. That's how practical Philippians 2 gets. That's what it means to not consider our interests, but to consider the interests of others. That's what it means to humble ourselves. I'm not telling you you have to get the vaccine. I'm not telling you you have to wear that mask. I'm telling you, you have to do what's right and responsible for your neighbor. That's what we're called to do. Paul says that when we do that, we're laying down our rights and our privileges the same way Jesus laid down his. For the sake of the people around us. And if we can learn to do that, not only will that rebuild trust in the church, that'll be rebuild trust between the church and the world. When they see Christians who care, they don't, Christians don't care, when, when the reputation of Christians is that we don't care about our rights, we care about our neighbors, when that becomes the, 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 the song that they hear, that will change everything about our mission. It will help us to actually introduce people to the God that we worship and we love because they see him embodied in us, in how we live, how we interact, how we love, how we sacrifice everything for the benefit of our neighbors. We consider not our rights, but rather what it means to serve. Because that's the God we worship. The one who, when he saw us in our need, took off his crown, laid aside his robes, stepped off his throne, and ultimately said, my life is worth nothing for the sake of welcoming us into his kingdom now and forevermore. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we say, thanks be to God. Amen. I want to give us a chance to confess those words together. To say this is what we believe about our God. Using the words of the Apostles' Creed and of Luther's explanation of the second article. Will you please stand as you are able and speak these words as an act of worship together. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. What does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, 
not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. Amen. You may be seated.